This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Like if you don't deal with the anger in your life, it's going to destroy you. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 114. Is your life happening to you or for you? This question trips me up at least once a week when I hit a setback or I run into a feeling that I can't shake. A lot of those times, those feelings are rooted in a deeper feeling that I haven't looked at or dealt with. And to quote Elsa, as I often do, it's typically something I just need to let go. Today's guest, Blake Maddox, has a story that looking back with a 2020 perspective on life, it is clear to me his life was unfolding in a way that was preparing him for bigger trials, bigger tests, requiring larger acts of courage and integrity than he could have ever imagined. If you're at a point in your life where you are struggling to get through and find the right path, I'm certain this episode will be a flashlight for you. And as always, if you want to hang on to the end of this episode, I will share my big giant takeaway from this episode. But without further ado, let's get started with Blake Maddox. Welcome to the podcast, Blake. Hey, great to be with you, Ben. Thank you. It's always exciting to talk to another Marine, and you came into my life because I decided to listen to The Unfolding, a podcast that I listened to, or I first heard, previewed on a Christian radio station here locally in southern Wisconsin, and I was like, once you mentioned you were a Marine, I knew I had to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited about this conversation because your story is going to help so many dads out there, and before we get to your story, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do today. Yeah, my uh, so my name is Blake Maddox. I'm Born and raised in Southern California, been in Colorado now since 1981, so almost for the last 40 years. I'm married, uh, have been married for 38 years to my wife, Melinda. We have two sons, Joshua and Ryan, both married. We have one granddaughter, Abigail. Uh, we all live in Colorado. We're thankful for that. Uh, currently, I am managing a project called 365 Christian Men, where we write, uh, we write a short inspirational story uh, for every day of the year, it's five minute story. We created a podcast and a uh, and a video uh, that ties in with the story. And there's stories about men from the apostles to modern day men, and uh, how they how they live their lives, how they uh, experienced the highs and lows in life, and uh, how they overcame, and uh, how we can be inspired by the legacy that they've left and are leaving for us. You hit out a buzzword there, legacy, and I'm going to wait till a little bit later in the interview to go down that rabbit hole because it's a big, huge part of this podcast that many veterans don't switch from the legacy of their service to the legacy of their family. But before we go there, I want to hear your story about what brought you to the Marine Corps because it comes from a place of 
trial, but then suffering, but then also where you're trying to find a new higher purpose for yourself. Yeah, great. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so 12 years old, I'm growing up in Southern California. I'm the oldest of four kids and I get uh, diagnosed with a condition at the time called cystic acne. And back in the seventies, that was something uh, very unfamiliar. It, it was just something that not many people suffered with. And so basically it was acne on steroids. And the only, uh, the only thing that they, the only remedy they had back then was to go to the, uh, go actually take and go to the dermatologist. And so my, my mom would drive me from the time I was 12 years old to the dermatologist. And uh, the, the recourse at that time were injections with, with uh, you know, some kind of medication in them. They'd actually put injections in my face uh, because these things were like cysts. And, uh, and so, you know, of course, my face would be numb, similar to what happens when you go to a dentist. And so I early on developed that condition from sixth grade going into seventh grade. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, I was teased pretty ruthlessly. It was one of those things that uh, not very many kids suffered from. And so oftentimes my face would be pretty distorted, you know, disfigured because of these cysts. And then going to the dermatologist, getting these injections in my face, uh, those things would be twice the size. So I'd have to go to school and uh, uh, my face would be numb, similar to going to a dentist. And, uh, and, and oftentimes in, uh, in school, you know, my face would start to ooze, these sores would ooze, I wouldn't know it because my face was numb. And so uh, from the time I was 12 years old until I was 18 years old, I dealt with cystic acne. And uh, as a kid being teased, uh, my only recourse really was either to retreat or to fight. And, uh, and I really did a combination of both, uh, often just running, not being involved in in any extracurriculars, not being involved in sports, not having any friends. I would go to school and I would leave, come home, stay isolated um, the best I could. Uh, when I was forced into a corner uh, because I was teased, then I would, uh, I would turn the other way and I would start to fight. And so as a result of that, I began to develop some serious anger issues in my life, which, you know, fast forward from 12 to 18, actually, uh, fast-tracked me into the Marine Corps, certainly can uh, can speak to that when when the time is right. The part that I felt like you were saying there as well, like that this acne became kind of like a mask for who you knew who you were on the inside, but all people could see was this mask on the outside and that being different really probably made you angry because you weren't able to, to be more of who yourself, yet you, people could only see this version on the outside and, and kids don't often look for what's underneath someone's skin or even be beyond who the person actually is. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely true. I'd say, uh, you know, I really didn't grow up with any friends. I had one friend in sixth grade and he and I were friends all the way through high school and, and still to this day friends. But uh, we both had uh, similar issues in that he struggled with something physical. He had uh, encephalitis and meningitis. And so it really debilitated him in some ways. And I had cystic acne. So we kind of uh, relied on each other. Uh, I didn't have friends growing up, didn't really have any influences that were good in my life other than family. And I thought family is supposed to treat you that way. I had a couple of significant events happen in my life, one in school and one with my first job that really uh, began to kind of, if you will, solidify this anger issue that years later would control and consume my life even prior to the Marine Corps, Marine Corps, and even post Marine Corps, um, 
that really that really shaped me in a in a very difficult way i would say when you were in those early days do you feel like you were trying to fit in or were you trying to hide you know at first i tried to fit in you know tried the sports thing uh but but you know being teased and uh not really uh being accepted i spent the majority of my life from 12 to 18 years old hiding Take us to the moment when you decided to join the Marine Corps because it was very sudden and it was very quick. Yeah, it was. So I had graduated high school early. I had actually uh, enlisted, not enlisted, but I had signed up for community college. My goal was to become a ranger, forest ranger. And and because I hated people, I thought I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to move to Alaska. My brother and I were going to move to Alaska. And the idea was that we would... Uh, we would just live by ourselves, recluses, if you will. And uh, I remember uh, walking by the television set. It was in 1979. I had graduated in high school in 1979, and I walked by the television set, and I heard the uh, broadcaster on TV say, 52 Americans held hostage in Iran. And it, it just echoed in me. Something, it, it, it stuck with me. It was powerful. And I I remember hearing what I would call at that time an audible voice. I can't say for sure it was. But uh, it was it was enough. It was strong enough that it drove me. And the, and the voice said, go in the Marine Corps. You can kill people legally and you won't go to prison. And I remember it was so profound, so uh, almost audible that I went and found a Marine Corps recruiter. Uh, even though I was in college, I went and found a Marine Corps recruiter. And I said, uh, I said, I want to go in the Marine Corps and I want you to send me to Iran and I want to kill people and I don't want to go to prison. And so. From the time I walked by that television set, five months later, I was in the Indian Ocean on the USS New Orleans. Had you even given thought to the military? Was it like a from a zero to 100 percent or like you humored it before going to college, but just didn't feel a path? You know, I, I came from a military family. My father uh, was in Korea. I had an uncle that was in Vietnam. I, both my grandfathers uh, served in the military. So I came from a military family, so there was a lot of honor and respect for the military in my family. And that was just something that was in me from the time I was a kid. But I, I really can't say that I had thought about uh, I had thought about the military. My, my idea was uh, just get away from people. When you went to Iran and you were in the Indian Ocean, do you feel like you were where you wanted to be or do you feel still feel like at the time you were like, this isn't what I was looking for. I still need to keep searching. You know, I, I, had, I would have to say at that point, I actually felt like I was in the place I wanted to be because I, I actually said to the Marine Corps recruiter, as I said, send me over there because I, I want to do harm to people, but I don't want to go to prison. And so MCRD, I went back for infantry training school. Uh, flew me to Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station, where I was stationed, and then on the on the USS New Orleans. So we were deployed for six months out there uh, in a wet, on a Westpac as a show of force. And really, uh, I had hoped that we would have an opportunity to engage the enemy because I thought somehow in my mind as an 18, 19-year-old, I thought if I could just do harm to other humans, somehow this anger that was festering on the inside of me would would somehow be relieved somehow be dealt with. That, that was really my thought. It was the only way to really actually uh, get the anger out was to actually inflict bodily harm on people. So knowing that that didn't happen, you only served four years or did you serve more than four? No, less than four actually, because uh, 
wasn't wartime. Uh, my mother died suddenly, 38 years old of uh, cancer, melanoma. And uh, my father was widowed. I was the oldest of uh, four. So they honorably discharged me under hardship conditions. How did that feel in that moment? Did you feel like you were cutting, getting cut short on what the Marine Corps was for you? Or did you feel like this is just my next road? No, I actually felt like I was being cut short. Once I had made the decision to go in the Marine Corps, then the, then the thought was, I will be a lifer. And I'll serve my time in the Marine Corps. And uh, I'll get out, I'll retire, and then I'll follow through on the dreams I had when I was in college. Uh, I felt like uh, it would be a great, great uh, segue. So I've heard it described being a Marine is often like being Superman and going from Superman to Clark Kent is one of the scariest things that a Marine or any person in uniform goes through. And I can imagine in your case where your your mother passed away, you got out that you probably felt like this superpower that you inherited by being a Marine was kind of being slipped away. And this new identity that you had come to trust was also going away as well. And that probably stewed the anger even more. Yeah, I would say absolutely. I would say it peaked because when I showed up at the hospital uh, and saw my mom in that hospital bed, nobody had told me my mom was sick. So when I got the news uh, that my mother was sick and I needed to come home immediately, I came home to a person I didn't even recognize because she had been battling this for months. So, uh, you know, fast forward a few weeks, uh, I'm being discharged from the Marine Corps and I really felt like in my heart that, and again, this was a premonition or a, a sense that I had or a lie from the enemy that I was believing that God had killed my mother. And so I, I would say the anger was peaking at that time. Uh, something I haven't mentioned yet, but it really changed the trajectory of my life was that uh, when I got to Hawaii, I met a guy who lived in Colorado, where we now live, and he was a believer. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ and was a believer. And uh, I knew that he was different. There was just something different about him than the other guys I was around. I grew up in a religious home, but I, I didn't know the difference between religion and relationship with God. And uh, but there was something different about Kirk. And uh, I remember him talking to me often for those months on the ship about the Lord. And so when I did get discharged from the Marine Corps, I was at a loss, uh, really kind of a crossroads in my life. What am I going to do? You know, first time in college. Uh, changed that path and went into the Marine Corps. And now I'm suddenly out of the Marine Corps. And uh, what am I going to do with my life? And I, I happened to get a card in the mail from his parents who actually lived in Colorado. He was still he was still uh, in the Marine Corps. And I got a card in the mail from his parents who said, uh, hey, if you want to come visit, we'd love to have you. And so I took a, a short trip to Colorado that ended up being uh, a, a real turning point in my life. So. For a man that doesn't have any friends, for that doesn't have a connection to himself, that was running from a whole laundry list of things, what felt right about running towards Colorado? Yeah, what a great question, Ben. Thank you. I think what felt right about it was I trusted Kirk. You, you know how it is as a Marine. Uh, you know, when you're in a fighting hole together and uh, you're serving together, you'd give your life for the people that you serve with. And, and there's a trust level that comes especially from being a Marine. And I trusted Kirk. And even though I didn't know his parents, there was just something in me that said, I can trust this decision. Uh, because it was a difficult decision to show up at somebody's house that I'd never met and knock on their door um, as an angry, angry man and not know what to expect. 
Was that something that was kind of like a profound moment where you began to trust yourself? Because probably even joining the Marine Corps, it wasn't that you were trusting. It just probably it felt like a direction that felt right. And this was something more aligned to a feeling versus maybe like actually trusting yourself. I, I would say you're right there. I'd say it would be more aligned with a feeling than trusting myself. I, I had no trust in myself. I was a ticking time bomb and uh, ready to explode or implode, you know, if somebody crossed me. And uh, so I, I think it was uh, more of a feeling just, you know, I'm home now and this is not, was not my plan and I don't want to be here. And so I just, I just took off. So you found this family in Colorado that welcomed you in. From knowing a little bit about your story, you kind of were able to just kind of figure out who you were for a while. When did you start figuring out, like, what were some of the first pieces that you started figuring out about yourself that hadn't come to the surface yet? Well, I think one of the first things was when I showed up at their house, they didn't judge me. These are people that didn't judge me. And uh, and they let me stay for a week. And uh, by the time that week was over, they said to me, if you want to move to Colorado, you can move in with us. You don't have to pay rent. And I remember on my way back to California thinking to myself, there's something different about these people because I've, I've never been treated well by people other than family. Growing up, I wasn't treated by a boss well. I wasn't treated by, treated by teachers. And so this was really something profound for me. And so um, it, it just brought to me a place of, uh, of peace, I would say, where I could say, you know, these people aren't judging me. And I, there was a freedom to explore what made them different. I guess that would be a good way to say it. There was something. It was like the eye of your hurricane that surrounding you was this big ball of energy. But in this little house at home in Colorado, it felt calm and it didn't feel reactionary that you weren't. Uh, and also I was picking up on when you were talking about it, it felt like you were able to take your mask off for the first time. Yeah, I actually was. I actually was at, at that point, of course, the cystic acne was gone. And of course, I was fit, you know, in great shape. And uh, I found myself being invited by them to the, the church that they had attended that Kirk had talked so much about. And uh, and even the youth group at that time, you know, I'm a young man, I'm 21 years old and um, attracted to the youth group. And because I'm a Marine and uh, all these kids are in the church, I, 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 I in a lot of ways became the center of attention. This was a new thing for the youth group. Here's this guy that came from California. Nobody knows him and he's a Marine. And uh, so I went from not having anybody pay attention to me as a kid to now all of a sudden, in a lot of ways, uh, the center of attention. You know, again, it was one of those things where uh, it was so different to me. And, and I just recognized that there was something different about this group of people. And what I would come to find out in the next few weeks as that time began to unfold was they, they actually had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't have one and I had grown up in a religious home, but I didn't actually understand what it meant to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I uh, started to see that firsthand in the way they treated each other and the way they treated me. And so I was very uh, inquisitive. It was very like, wow, there, there's something to this that's real. There's something to this that's genuine. And so I began to recon and try to figure out what it was. Were you starting to make friends easier at this point or were you still kind of very guarded and letting people kind of see who really Blake was at this time? Yeah, you know, uh, not long after I moved in with this family, uh, they told me about a, a home that was called the student residence where young people my age lived. 
and half of them were girls, half of them were guys. And uh, the home was actually run by a pastor and his wife. And they invited me to move in. And so I moved into this home with 30 young adults my age, half guys, half girls. Girls lived upstairs, guys lived in the basement. And the main floor was the common area where we did life together. We ate and shared meals together. And so all of a sudden I went from being in the Marine Corps and living in a squad bay to being on a ship to being now in Colorado, living in a home with 30 other young adults that uh, were becoming friendly and uh, were accepting me for who I was. I still had some serious, serious anger, anger issues that, that actually were going to explode in front of all of them uh, in a few weeks after I moved out of the house. But, but they were starting to accept me for who I was, even though at that point, I didn't understand what it meant to have a relationship with God like they were experiencing. There's a huge component that you probably recognize when you're in that or the irony that when we're in the Marine Corps, we recognize that we're a unit, we're together, we do it as a team, we're not an I, we are a team together, and we function as a team, and life is easier when you do things as together as a team, but what the military doesn't do is they don't condition you to understand you need to recreate your community and your team on the other side of transition that we just almost automatically go into this isolation mode, especially modern day military members. We just leave, we self-isolate, we aren't told that we can actually have feelings and we don't find our community and we just become self-destructive, almost IEDs to the people around us that do care about us. And when you found that community, you probably was like, I'm, you probably had some very similar times of like, I feel these people care about me in some of the same ways that the fellow Marines did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's a great analogy you painted. You know, when you serve in the military, uh, like you said, there's a camaraderie and there's a unity and there's uh, there's things that you maybe never saw or experienced when you get out. And then the difficulty of actually trying to find that or re-engage somewhere with that is very, very difficult. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's, you know, the, the pandemic of our veterans taking their own lives and things because the loneliness and the battles that they're fighting and the internal battles and where do you share it? And where do you offload those burdens? And, and, and it's a rare thing. So when I, when I began to experience that, it was unique for me and special. And uh, I, I still didn't realize at the time I was a ticking time bomb, but I was starting to see very similar things that I had seen in the military. The component that I want to point out for all the dads listening to this episode is that what you don't know when you find your community on the other side, it happens naturally in the military, but when you're on the other side and you find your community is, and it happened in my life, my story started unfolding when I started talking to dads at the park and found that it was incredibly easy and fun to connect with other dads is they begin to reflect back the best parts of yourself. And when you have those internal storms or anger, so often your, your conscious is in this dark shadow that you can't even see your own value. But when people come into your life, they don't see that. They see the person on the outside and they can see past all that stuff and they can help reveal who you are. And to me, it was other dads who helped reveal a person inside me that I wasn't even acknowledging or even knew existing. And if it wasn't for those friends and people that I had conversations with, I would have never asked better questions to go to a higher potential for myself. Yeah, great point. And I, and I think the the unfortunate thing is not everybody finds themselves migrating to a community like that. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's one of the reasons I appreciate what you're doing because, uh, people are getting out and they, they've got a lot of what ifs and what do I do now? And how do I re-engage and how do I connect? And, 
And so, yeah, so for me, that was a very important thing. And I was beginning to experience it and actually beginning to connect with these people. But I realized they had something I didn't. And uh, and that relationship with Jesus was something that I saw in them that was significant. And and it began to it began to change the trajectory at that point of my life, because everything at that point had blown up in my world. First, it was college and isolation. Then it was going to be the Marine Corps in isolation. And now, all of a sudden, I'm living in, in community with people. And I'm seeing that there's actually life in community when you're in the right kind of community. And the other part that you're you're hinting towards, and I talk about it so many times in the podcast, that men were never wired to do life alone. For millennia, we've done life in tribes and communities. And it's in the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, really, since men decided to start going to work in a factory that we've just been self-consciously wired that what it, you happens in your life is meant to be carried on your shoulders alone. But never in the history of mankind have we been wired to do that. We've always, like life is going to give you more than you can handle and you need men around you. Like if you think of even like American Indians, there was always elders ahead of them that had already walked the road that they were on. And there was always people behind them that were still looking for, ahead of people that were ahead of them. And it was always kind of like a, a barrel of monkeys mindset where they always had one hand up and one hand down. And as a veteran, if you don't have that one hand up looking for help ahead of you and one hand behind you for the people that are like two steps behind you, like so desperately trying to find that next right step, you're, you're almost in that path of that you can go off into no man's land and just feel like it's all on you. And that's where you have those really shitty thoughts that your family's better without you. And I can solve that problem very quickly. Yeah, true. Really, really true. Take us to that moment that where they kind of boiled up that you kind of hinted there where a few weeks later it kind of came to head. Yeah, so so I moved to Colorado and I, I move in in the home and I would say I had this I had an encounter with God in a church service where the pastor was preaching. I really felt like he was speaking to me and I found myself responding down at the front and it really felt like God impacted me from the inside out and said, "I've got a call on your life." And I actually have called you to be a pastor. I I really sensed and felt that. I would say a few days later, I was in the basement and we were playing ping pong and I was playing with a good friend of mine and the basement was filled with people and we were hitting the ball back and forth. And he said to me, you ready to play a real game now? And I said, sure. And he hit the ball across the table and the ball popped up and hit me in the eye. And it just, I mean, he wasn't trying to hurt me. He just was playing ping pong, but Forrest Gump style. what's that? Forrest Gump style. Yeah. Forrest Gump style. <laughs> exactly. Something, uh, something triggered in me and I snapped and I jumped across the table and I grabbed a hold of him and I slammed him into the corner of the wall so hard that I was ready to break his neck. And I remember at that moment, just uh, something grabbing me from the back. And, uh, and in one swift moment, if I could describe it, I felt my whole body really being turned and lifted off of the ground. And the pastor of the home happened to be there at that moment. And he had me by one hand on my throat up in the corner of the wall. And I remember he said these words to me. He said, Blake, if you don't deal with the anger in your life, it's going to destroy you. And I remember he let go of me and I slumped down in the corner and something very profound happened at that moment. So I could see the, the whites of people's eyes because they had never experienced anything like this, that, that kind of an escalation or an explosion of anger, but something different with them than I had ever experienced. Uh, instead of running upstairs, terrified by what they had just experienced, one by one, they they started to come over to me and say, hey, Blake, it's okay. It's going to be all right. And and I felt like at that moment that I had a community that wasn't judging me, but was going to 
accept me for who I was at that moment and help me walk through that. And that was what I experienced. And for me, that was a profound moment and a turning point. I, I for years, have been teaching at an organization called Youth with, uh, Youth with a Mission. And I would often do a teaching called Monsters Live in the Dark. And I think sometimes what happens with us, whether we're in the military or not, we have these monsters that live in the dark. And when the wrong button or the right button's pushed, the monster comes out. And uh, that, that's what happened at that moment. And what you're also talking about is those shadows that I was kind of alluding that I often tell or talk about that, that when you're having a conversation with anybody and you have these things in your shadows, subconsciously, you're always kind of rotating yourself and keeping your shadows in the darkness. Because if anybody sees that darkness and you all yourself don't even know because it's always been dark, but you know there's something scary there that you just spend a lot of mental energy hiding that darkness. But the, the almost the opposite happens. Well, you kind of experience that. When you do, and yours was kind of a, a very negative expression of that um, darkness, but had you just been openly experienced and said, like, I feel massively angry in an open way, like you experience what most people feel when they are vulnerable. Like instead of repulsing the people around them, it is actually a matter of attraction. I can't tell you how many times I remember one where I was telling my story about friends at the park and I was up in front of a group of men. I was at a men's retreat and the guy, some dad came up to me after we were done talking and he was crying before he even said hello. And it was my story, my little moment of being vulnerable about doing life alone that made him brought him to tears because he put words to feelings he didn't understand. And that's the part that veterans don't understand. I mean, I'm a Marine that talks about his emotions, expresses his feelings and tells his stories and shows all of his darkest secrets on a podcast. Like to me, I am an example and an oxymoron of the path that we all need to do as veterans. And it's, it's humbling to hear what had happened in that moment and what was going forward. And I can't, I've been waiting to ask you this question, but I feel like this is a good moment to ask it that there is this question that I learned last year from Morgan Schneider, who we had in the podcast. And he says, it takes a lot of shit to make good soil and good soil bears great fruit. You had a lot of shit in your life, anger. You had your mom passing away. You joined the Marine Corps to kill Iraqis. You got taken out of that. You were in this anger phase. You had this acne. But a lot of the times that shit, if you work it in the soil, creates that purpose. What were you able to figure out? Like all that shit and fertilizer in your life was really making you for. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, you know, I, I guess I, I became aware of the reality that God wants to do life with us. And uh, I remember hearing a man say one time, life will trash your trophies. And life sometimes has a way of trashing your trophies, you know, your bad experiences, the loss of a loved one, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what I began to realize was that I had something to offer and that uh, this mess that I had made of my life and this anger that had pretty much driven me could be redeemed. And uh, and I could take all of that stuff uh, that uh, would become fertilizer and let it become fruitful in my life. And so I made a, I did a 180. I went from wanting to isolate myself and being away from people to saying, I'm going to go to Bible college and I'm going to learn the Bible because I feel like I'm supposed to be a pastor. And that is completely the opposite of the direction I was going. I was saying to my brother, let's go to Alaska and let's never see another person to saying, I'm going to Bible college because I really believe God has a call on my life. And, uh, and I want to inspire people to know the Lord and to live out their calling. So all of that mess, all of those losses and all of those pain 
that pain actually uh, sent me on a trajectory to really ultimately what I was created to do and be. And I can't help but also ask that there's probably been many moments in your ministry where you saw the look of anger on someone's face and their soul before they even were conscious of it themselves. And that's the part that when you when you're in the the thick of the shit, you don't feel like there's going to be any purpose. But I know for me, I was in a similar boat where I didn't have many friends growing up in co- in high school and everybody, I just didn't feel like I fit in. I was not accepted and I was just afraid to talk to people. And I can see it in someone's face even before they even know it because I was there, I was in their shoes. And I'm sure that you've been able to take what happened to you and not maybe, maybe not say the same words or maybe you have a few times, but you've been able to pull people up from that pit of anger because you've been there, you've walked those shoes. And that's when you can find purpose in that shit and be able to work it in and understand how you've just saved a family from a suicide potentially maybe because, and you have those moments. This is the other key thing, like whether you lost a friend in the battlefield or wherever your tragedy happens, there's going to come a time where you're able to step in someone's life, be someone for this person. And you're like, I wouldn't have had my life any other way. And this moment wouldn't have happened. And I'm grateful for all the crap that has happened because this moment is something special. Yeah, totally. And I, and I think that's a good, that's a good point to make for those that are listening today. You know, those that have somehow in their minds disqualified themselves, your experience, whatever it is that you've experienced and whatever it is that you've gone through, uh, you can turn your pain into purpose. And um, you, when you've experienced something, you can see when somebody is struggling with where you've been and what you've been through. And to have an opportunity to reach your hand out and reach down and grab a hold of somebody and pull them up and try to encourage them or build them up uh, is powerful. But I think sometimes we believe the lie that uh, the pain we've experienced doesn't have a purpose. Your metaphor of fertilizer and fruitfulness is is so true with life. And and, and I think that's one of the things that my wife and I determined was that we were going to use the pain of whatever it is that we experience, whatever it is that we go through to try to help people. And there's another point that I want to, there's another question I want to ask that there, I had a Bobby Dove on a podcast last November and he, we, it was just still this moment that I still love. And I've asked this question many times in the past and since that episode that he lost an arm and a leg to an IED in Afghanistan, but he describes it as the best day of his life and that he really had to, we had to work through it. We came to the conclusion that this was how God needed him to learn to love himself and learn to ask for help. And that this was the test that he had to go through to really get to the other side to learn that lesson. Do you feel like there is, I think I have an idea, but I'm interested in what your answer is. Do you feel like there's a lesson that this trial that you were going through up to this moment where you were kind of shaking the anger, like waking up, like this was the test that you needed to learn this important lesson and all of these events had to go through to learn it? Yeah, totally. I think I can look back, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now that I can look back and say that most of the trials in life are crossroads. And it, it, it's the decision that we make at that crossroad that determines, you know, how we're going to respond to it and where we're going to come out of it. And uh, and I think there's no question. It, it began me a, a journey on having to look on the inside and not not so much being concerned about what people saw on the outside, but really looking at the inside. What, what is it that caused me to be so angry? Uh I didn't like myself. I, I thought nobody liked me. So I didn't like myself. I didn't respect myself. And so it really caused me to look in the mirror internally, which is important. We live in a world today where it's all about outward appearance. And really, we have to look on the inside. And so 
that was probably as an adult, one of the first defining moments for me, actually looking in the mirror and saying, you are not just anger. That, that doesn't need to define you anymore and control you. More importantly, control you. And, uh, but it was work. It was a hard job, hard work to wrestle that out and work through it. Is there a particular moment where you realized that when you looked in the mirror and you were able to unconditionally love all the good, the bad, and the ugly looking back? I, I wish I could tell you that it happened in a, in a moment, but I would have to say it was a process. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that sometimes is challenging for us that, you know, when we become aware of something, we think that automatically we should have a handle on it. We should be able to overcome it. But the truth is, oftentimes there's a lot of work involved. Uh, I think that the first thing that's important is there has to be an awareness and then there has to be intentionality. You have to target that thing you're going after. And I really began to target it. And the, and the more I did target it, the more I began to realize that uh, that the lies that I believed, the power of the lies that I had believed had really controlled everything that I was doing. And I had to unring a lot of those bells and unwind a lot of those lies. I can imagine, because I've seen it for myself, that probably a theme other than that was that you were worthy of love. And I think most people who go in that pursuit of Christ and God, that's like one of the first truths that they have to let go that I am worthy of love and I am worthy of having a rich life. And I have to let go of that idea that that's not me. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's an aha moment. I think a lot of times for people, because most of the time, if we're not careful in the world, we, we, uh, we aspire to external validation where really the validation has to be internal because if it's an external, uh, then it's, it's subject to too many uncertainties, but the internal validation comes from knowing that God loves us and he created us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. There's never going to be another one like us and we're unique and he doesn't want us to be somebody different. He wants us to be who he's created us to be. And the discovery of that is, uh, is, is super important. And so this is kind of like the, the middle part of your story. While you think anybody listening to this episode might think like from here, you've, you found your path and you're able but life wasn't able, wasn't done letting you learn the lessons of this anger and letting it go. Fast forward a little bit to how you had risen up and then had to learn how to fall back down and then still stand back up and know who you are. Oh, great question. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate your, how you're transitioning this, uh, this interview. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't have any education really other than high school. And so when I moved to Colorado, I went to work for a guy who had a masonry company. And I learned the masonry trade, bricklaying, uh, block, stone, et cetera. And uh, so uh, at the same time working for him, I went to Bible college. And uh, so for the next 20 plus years, I was bivocational. My wife is an RN and we were raising two sons and I was working, um, laying brick, doing construction work and pastoring. And I would say I did that bivocationally for a long, long time. In 2008, I actually was able to go full time uh, into the ministry and did that for about the next uh, 10 years full time. And then I hit uh, what was much more than a bump in the road. Uh, I had uh, had risen to the top, if you will, of my vocation. I was an executive pastor at a large church on the teaching team and uh, experiencing 
probably what you would call success on a lot of levels. And, uh, you know, I'd reached the pinnacle of what I thought was success in that world. And uh, I found myself in May of 2018 going to the lead pastor. I was on the executive team, but we had a lead pastor and saying to him, I need to resign. And he said, well, why do you need to resign? And I said, well, I had an emotional affair with somebody on staff. So I've disqualified myself from serving as a pastor or leader in the church. And uh, so at that moment, in my late 50s, I blew up my world. I blew up my relational world with my wife, and I blew up my vocational world. So for decades, I had built a rapport and respect and uh, had really, um, you know, uh, worked hard to have that. And all of a sudden, I just blew it all up. And so now I'm uh, I'm literally on my knees saying, what am I going to do in my world? First of all, is my wife going to stay? Is she going to stay? Is she going to go? And having to sit down with my adult sons and say to them, here's what your dad did. And having my son look at me and say, dad, you're a dirtbag. And for doing that to your, to, to my mom. And, and so in May of 2018, I blew up uh, both of those worlds, relational and vocational. And uh, the past years, three years have been uh, a long, hard journey of working together to redeem and restore my relationship with my wife and figure out what was going to be next for me. When I heard that part of your story in the podcast, the unfolding, and even as you're hearing it again, the part that I wanted to ask was, did you feel like your ego inside your head was, and I'm almost wondering if it was like reactionary impulse that like, this was your ego saying like, see, I was right 20 years ago. You should have just listened to my advice, been angry, been this poor soul that didn't do anything incredible. And you're kind of blowing up your life was this, this knee jerk reaction to prove your ego, right? That like, see, this is why people like you can't have things like that. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, and, and I think for, for so many years, you know, in the ministry world, people look up to you and, uh, and so, you know, you're put on a pedestal by people. And if you're not careful, you put yourself up there. And it can be a dangerous place because you can be so focused on what people perceive of you or helping other people that you don't look in the mirror anymore. And you don't really realize that, you know, we're a work in process and we're a work in progress and we have to continually be willing to look in the mirror. And so all of a sudden, all of those rushes of see you're no good and, and look at you. And uh, I think one of the biggest decisions my wife and I made at that moment that was pivotal and she was incredibly courageous in this because she had people saying, kick him to the curb. And she had to wrestle it out with God and felt like God said, no, stay. And one of the things we determined that we were going to do, we have decades of legacy in that church. My wife over 40 years and myself over 35. And we felt like we were not going to run. We said we are staying at this church where she's been for over 40 years and I've been for over 30 years. And we're going to walk this out in the light. We're not going to go hide in the shadows. We're not going to hide in the dark. We're going to actually walk this out. It was incredibly difficult. People, you know, seeing us a week earlier, a month earlier, or six months earlier <coughs> as people that were on staff and influential. And now we're attending and well, why'd you resign? And so we walked that out and it was incredibly challenging, but it was the most important decision we made at that moment to not run and to not hide. You know, I almost got a little bit uh, emotional there when I was having this thought as you were telling that story. I can't help but think God was preparing you for that moment when you were playing ping pong. Because the exact same, the analogy works almost beautifully because 
you had this very terrifying moment where you almost choke slammed this guy across the ping pong table and the community around you didn't push you away. They came closer and it gave you the blueprint of how to walk through crisis in the future. And that's exactly what you did. I don't know if you had that connection or like felt like you could trust yourself because you've been witness to what can happen with community. But I almost got goosebumps. I, got, I did get goosebumps when you're talking and I put those two analogies together of how it's a beautiful example of how life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you. You just don't always understand how that ping pong table was preparing you for a trial that was 10 times harder and was going to have a more lasting impact on your legacy than some simple ping pong game. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think probably, you know, we've talked about a 30 year span of history here. I think, you know, that we have to remind ourselves that just because there's a failure or there's a setback in our legacy, it's a chapter. It's not the entire book. And, uh, and depending on what you do with that chapter in your life determines what the next chapters are going to be like. And I think for my wife and I walking that out in the context of the place where we had decades of relationships was both life-giving and painful at the same time, because we hurt a lot of people, especially me. I hurt a lot of people, disappointed people. On the other hand, the people that really loved us were there for us and stood by us. Did you have any connection or spent, I'm sure you probably did, so I'm interested in what you're thinking about it, of how my sons will judge me? Not necessarily on the event that how it happened, but how you responded. Yeah, I mean, it was terrifying, for sure. You know, they they loved their dad, they respected their dad. You know, they're they're grown men at that point. They're, third, you know, they're in their late 20s at that point. And, uh, and so to have to sit down with them you know, with their mother right there and say, listen, this is what I did. I betrayed your, your mom. I betrayed our family. Uh, you know, I, I knew it was going to hit them hard, you know, and, uh, I could not control what their response would be, you know, and, uh, and, you know, they, they walked with us through it. They loved us through it. And, uh, we, you know, I've got a great relationship with my sons to this day, uh, but, you know, very difficult in between my two ears, you know, how, how are they going to, handle this, you know, and how are they going to respond? And, you know, what's our relationship going to be like? And so you've had 10 years since that event to observe how your kids have, or your sons have grown up. Have you been able to see any future behavior within their life modeled on the example of like owning your truth or being a man of integrity? Has that showed up in a way that like your example gave that path? Totally. Totally. And I think that's part of the, that this part of the, the importance of people realizing you have to walk out your trial because you're not going to see the fruit from your trial until you're down the road a little bit. And, uh, and so if you look around you, when you're walking through a trial, you can, you can stay discouraged, but if you keep in the forefront of your mind that this will produce fruit later on, it will be good. And, and I, I, I've seen my wife respond incredibly well and rise up and stand with me and support me. And probably even a deeper part of her was even revealed through the pressure of that growth that she had to go through. Totally, totally. And lonely for her in a lot of ways, because people close to her saying, leave, you know, don't stay. And, uh, and even having to make those choices was incredibly difficult. And, uh, and the same with our sons, but our sons both, um, you know, they both have stories that are their own and, uh, but they've manned up. And they're, they're living life and they're, they've accepted responsibility and they're, they're both great husbands. So I'm grateful for that. And there's a part that I talk. So now here's a perfect time to talk about legacy because this is almost teed up perfect for what you just talked about. 
This is what military dads don't really understand when we keep our life in the shadows. I've been talking about a lot in the podcast that one of the worst things that a dad could do to their kids is they could they pass from this world, the kids are at their funeral, and for the first time through a friend of their dad, they learn who their dad was. And they never had a chance to really truly understand who their dad was when they when he was alive. And all this is massive amount of regret of like, man, if I'd known my dad had kind of cool stories like that, we could have had such a better connection. I never knew my dad did those cool things. Why didn't he ever open up? And even for you, whenever your time on earth is done, I am most positive that there's gonna be a moment in your son's life later on that they're gonna be tested. They're gonna be like, what would dad do? And you revealed your trials in a way that allowed them to understand the correct path and how they could look through your life as a lens and be like, dad did this. This is how it unfolded. This is where it can lead. And that's legacy. When you give your kids a path and a blueprint to live their life, to ask the question, what would dad do? Like, to me, that's one of the most powerful questions you can gift your kids and have them understand how to connect with dad's wisdom. If you can connect with dad's wisdom, your time on earth is never really over because your kids continue to make an impact with that wisdom well beyond their life. And it could be generational, not even just measured in centuries. Yeah, that that is so true. And I think what in order to actually walk that out intentionally, you have to determine in your own mind that you're not going to do it with perfection. Because I think a lot of reasons that, uh, you know, kids don't hear about their dads and don't hear those stories is because people have shame uh, or somehow they're embarrassed by the mistakes that they've made. But but actually, one of the most life giving things you can do is you can share your trials and your pain uh, with your kids and with your family, because, like you said, it becomes part of your legacy. If if the kid looks at you and says, my dad always did it perfect and he never made a mistake, then that's that's a, that's a reality they can't live in because nobody- Whether you're alive or not, they're going to always be like, they're never going to feel happy with what they have because dad always said, there's also an analogy I've heard a couple of times where, and I'm sure it's true because there are dads like this, where you come home and you got a, a, a B plus and your dad's like, well, why couldn't you get an A minus? And it's it's not it's that you're you're never good enough, which is one of the worst feelings you can go through life. And it just leaves you with a question that doesn't ever get an answer. You know, one of the things that's really been cool for me. So when I blew up my relational world and my vocational world, how does a guy in his mid to late fifties go out and start over? You can't do it. You know, you work hard to get to the place where you're, you're making the wage you're making. And now you're in your fifties, you can't start over. And, you know, God sovereignly intervened. And I've been working on this project now, 365 Christian men for the last almost three years. And what's really been cool about this project is what we've done is we've written short stories. We've created a daily podcast and a daily video that tells the story uh, about men all the way from the first century to modern day men. And what I love about the project is they're not stories of men that did it right. They're stories about men that had setbacks and trials and failures and, and how they were able to overcome them, whether they were relational or vocational or addiction or incarceration. And, and I think that the power of story is profound. And if we're going to leave a legacy, we need to know that our story is profound and it matters and we need to share it and we need to tell it. And it starts with sharing it and telling it with the people closest to us. And that's what we're trying to do with the power of story with 365 Christian men is tell men the story, the story is not over for you. You know, you're a truck driver, you're blue collar, you're white collar, you're IT, you're, you know, whatever it is that you do, your story is not over. And your legacy is not finished yet. 
And what we do on this earth is important, but what we leave behind is 10 times more important. And that to me is how I wrap my life around legacy. And what you're talking about story is is so connecting because when you find, like, I learned this by binge watching NCIS last year during the Corona lockdowns that uh, there was a moment where Gibbs was helping another Marine sniper on the episode. And the therapist says, when you share your story, it becomes a door for another man. And so one man's story creates a door for another man to walk through where he never knew one existed. And that's the power of story is when you realize that you're not alone and you can realize that, yeah, people walk this path every day. I remember when I lost my job, people came up to me and said, you're starting a path that people, thousands of people in the United States start every single day and they get to a destination and it may seem like it's perilous now, but people walk it every single day. But when you lose it, it's not something you feel that way, but other people's stories can help you remember that. Yeah, people walk this path all the time. And I can imagine when you opened your story up within the church community, your church has probably even grown deeper connection by this man's example of revealing and walking through openly. Like you probably have a deeper connection to church and the church is probably a deeper community because of your example within it. And to me, that's, again, you're creating a legacy within that community of a church. You don't even know all the ripples that you opening your life up to do. And to me, that's the beauty of of when you reveal what's really holding you back. These truths that like your best friend died in Iraq, whatever whatever it may be, whatever story that you feel is too great to share, when you share it, you never know how that one other person on the other side is is going to receive it. And even with the podcast, the podcast is a perfect example. I create these episodes. I never truly know how it's going to impact people until someone leaves an iTunes review saying, I have my husband because he started listening to your podcast and decided to start getting help. Like you get those little breadcrumbs from your story and it's like, yeah, that's why you keep going. Yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, and I would say for the listeners who are out there today saying that my story is not important, it's not significant. It's not like somebody else's. I don't have a cool testimony like Ben or like somebody else. That's a lie. Uh, Your, your legacy is important and it's valuable and somebody is going to benefit from you sharing your story. And so be willing to open up, be willing to open up and be willing to share your story. And if you're in that place of pain, open up and share it with somebody, because there are people out there that want to listen um, and, and don't isolate yourself. And as I've kind of just put together my head from this last trial that you just shared, it's kind of like God was really trying to tell you to wear your, the inside and the outside of yourself that like take these masks down feel safe to bring all the different things on the inside out and be that example for others that almost wearing yourself inside out a little bit. And with the scars and everything on the inside that you feel like that to me was like your ultimate lesson that God was trying to teach you is like, it's okay to reveal everything on the inside and you can be an example for others and like a torch almost of like, this is the way that you can walk this road with me and still show everything that is on the outside. Yeah. I, I I could not agree with you more on that. I think as hard as the last three years have been and the most painful for my wife and I, they have been the the greatest in many, many ways because we're stronger. Our relationship is stronger. Our relationship with our sons is stronger. Um, So I would say no question about it. And and so the importance of walking out your painful experience uh, is going to reap a harvest at some point. you know, the thing I'm doing now, I would have never dreamed that I would have an opportunity to do. And I'm grateful because I'm experiencing something um, that I didn't have an opportunity to experience. But it wasn't until I was willing to come face to face with really what I still had to deal with, 
we can't ever get to the point where we feel like we've overcome it all and we've arrived. And, and there was a pride and there was a, there was a false humility in me that was ugly and it was deceptive. And I was living in that. And uh, even as a pastor living in that, and even that probably was like, felt like a little bit of a mask that like you could hide on this pedestal of being the executive pastor for the church. And while it was noble and most people aren't going to call a pastor out for anything that they see might be as BS, it's a great place to, and, and you hear stories about that all, all the time of where a pastor rises and there's really a dark side that most people never know. And, and they probably don't take the noble road that you did of owning it and still being at it, not necessarily at the top, but not running from what actually happened. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of credit to my wife because, uh, you know, it would have been easy to run, would have been easy just to pick up and start over somewhere. But, but, you know, the healing was going to come from staying in the light. And, uh, you know, as being one of the executive pastors, there was a few of us uh, staying and walking it out there. Uh, I had to deal with the shame again. I had to deal with the pride, had to deal with the unforgiveness in my own heart. I had to deal with all of the ugly and uh, all of the insecurity and all of the stuff that had been so masked for so, so long. And as painful as it was, I'm grateful and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm interested to see how this showed up in your life as a dad to your sons. How did you parent and kind of drip the wisdom of what the anger did to you when you held it in? How did that show up and make sure that your kids understood the healthy relationship that you can have with anger? Like, I mean, it's a healthy emotion to have, but how did you show up that in your dad? to? Because in some cases, you're probably like almost fearful, like you're going to mess it up. Like, how do I not mess up my kids so that they don't feel the same internal aggression towards anger that I felt? And a lot of dads can get hung up on what's the right answer in those types of moments. Yeah. I think that that was constantly a challenge for me, you know, because I, I didn't want to explode. I didn't want to, I, I knew it was something I couldn't control. So, you know, I was always careful. And so there were times when I would have to, I just have to leave, you know, so I didn't do that. And so I think I was able to somehow keep uh, my sons from being exposed to that volatile anger, but it, it, I wouldn't say it was a healthy thing because I, how'd you teach them to understand it as they entered adulthood, as they grew up, how did you give them the understanding of how to work through it in their own life? Yeah. I think the older they got, the more I realized that, uh, you know, I, I needed to talk to them from the inside out, not the outside in. And, uh, fortunately I had a good relationship with my sons. I spent time with them growing up. And so they would have probably at that time, you know, called me a good dad. I wasn't a derelict. I wasn't absent. You know, I spent time with him. And so there was some relational credibility there that when we had to talk about hard things, you know, when they were going through middle school and high school, we had some relational uh, collateral there that we could use to talk about those things. And so when the anger was there or they were dealing with the addiction things or the relational things or the challenging things, we, we were able to talk about it. Do you remember the time when you did tell them about the moment where the pastor came up to you and told you that if you don't get this anger out, it's going to hurt you? Yeah, totally. I do. I do. And they, they heard it many times because, you know, growing up in church and their dad being a pastor, I would often share that testimony, you know, and so they knew it. They knew it. They had heard it multiple times. And, uh, you know, they they were always inquisitive and always would ask about it. And so we would talk about it. And I'm sure there's probably going to be a moment, maybe it's already happened, where 
it's like they go into a life moment and they're like, oh, this is where that story that I heard all this time that they probably just don't even maybe really understand the credibility of the story or like the, the wealth of knowledge that comes from it. And they enter that moment. You're like, this is what that moment was trying to teach. And for me to hear and all those times where I was just thought it was something that always talked about. It was this is the moment I was being prepared for. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So what does the future look like for Blake? Where is your future feel like you're headed? Is it continuing to work on this for a longer time or is there something else in the future for you? Yeah. You know, I think a couple things, I think, you know, I'm grateful for this opportunity, 365 Christian men. And, and I hope to do this for the rest of my life. I hope to be, you know, because of the power of story, we're never going to run out of candidates. There's always going to be a story we can write. We're, we're getting ready to uh, start 365 Christian women. We're going to do the same thing with women that we did with men, one year's worth of content. But the other thing that's really important for my wife and I is we uh, we want to share our story. We we are starting a ministry called the Master's Message Ministry, where we and you heard our testimony on the Unfolding podcast. We want to we want to walk alongside of people. You know, we we always felt like for years that part of our heart for the church was that the church should be the place people run to, not run from. And when people are hurting, the church should be a spiritual hospital. And we have always had a heart for people that are hurting inside the church because unfortunately churches oftentimes are where people perfect the masks that they wear. They walk in, you ask how they're doing. Oh, I'm doing great, doing great. We're doing great. And, and they walk out and their life is falling apart. And so we really want to be able to minister to people who are hurting, whether it's individuals or whether it's marriages and, uh, we want to be able to come alongside of them and uh, and talk to them about our experiences and what we've been through and really be there for them. And I've heard this analogy just last week, so it's fresh off the presses of my head, that there's kind of three voices out there in life. There's the fellow traveler, which sounds like a lot like what you're looking to be. There's a Sherpa that's been up the mountain before, and they're going to help guide you up there before, also very similar to what your story is. And often the other one, the sage, is one who lives the top of the mountain, and you have to climb the mountain on your own to get to that wisdom. But that's not often the best place where you can serve people. And I, I love the part where you're at, where you're actually being in that Sherpa, where you've I've been up this mountain many times. I can help you get up there and help you understand where you need to watch for those pitfalls. Because that's the part that we don't realize with community is the people ahead of us know where the shortcuts are. They know where, hey, watch out. There's a bump there that's really hard if you don't slow down. That's why we always need people ahead of us, but that's not how society is wired. And that's often even somehow like within the church community, it's not something that we feel. I mean, I grew up Catholic and in my church that I grew up in, it wasn't where I felt okay being or revealing something hard. It was you had to follow the rules and that's how it worked. And that never created like what you said. I resonated with that a lot of not having a relationship with God. I I understood religion, but I didn't have a relationship with God because I always just felt like if you follow the rules, that's how you get in heaven. But that's not that wasn't useful as a 36-year-old dad that I was like, I don't just need to follow the rules. I need to ask for advice. I need to be able to have a conversation. And I need to be able to talk to people that have been on this road with me and help guide me there. Yeah, great point. I think that once we come to the realization that everything is done in the context of relationship, we've set ourselves up to succeed. Religion says, follow the rules. Relationship is different. I remember hearing as a kid, and I've never forgotten this, rules and regulations without relationship breed rebellion. And uh, whether you're talking about your relationship with God, if it's not a relationship and it's religion, you're going to rebel. 
If you are uh, living in a home where it's all about regulations and rules and there's no relationship, there's going to be rebellion. And so God created us to be in relationship with him and relationship with one another. I think it's really important that we're in accountable relationships, relationships where iron sharpens iron and we can test each other. We can stand with each other. We can hold somebody up when they're going through a trial and a difficulty. And like you said, I love that metaphor of the Sherpa and the traveler. And that's brilliant. And uh, and I, I think that's important. And uh, I think for the listeners, you know, they just do I have those people that I'm accountable to? Do I have those people that can speak into my life? And if not, you need them. Where is the friend that you were in the fellow Marine Corps with that helped point your direction towards Colorado? Where is he today in your life? Today he lives, uh, he's back in Colorado. He got out of the Marine Corps, went to work uh, in a high security uh, facility, moved to Arizona and spent two plus decades in Arizona and has moved back to Colorado now, is back here now and uh, is not quite retired yet, but but still lives here in Colorado. And his family doesn't live here anymore, but he still lives here. I actually had the opportunity uh, about 20 plus years ago to officiate his wedding. Oh, that would have been really, that would have been like a full circle moment, almost like pinch me right now. It was very special. It's happening. Very special. And I can't imagine like, I mean, to think of his legacy in that small little micro moment where he gave you a nudge to like, Hey, go out to Colorado. Like, I mean, that was literally like a 90 degree direction turn for you. And it rewired your family tree forever. I mean, you were able to redevelop an entire new branch of what your, legacy of family means. And it came from just a simple random act of kindness of him showing up in your life at the right time, which is why I think it's so important for community. Like we've been talking about, like you never know who needs your message and who never, who needs to know or have a check from a text, like, Hey, what's going on? You never know where someone is at. I always like sending thank you cards because you never know how someone is that day. The moment they open that mail, like they've maybe been fine when they were talking to you, but when you send them a card, like maybe that was the day or even when I'm out in town, I often think like you never know what it took for someone to put their pants on that day. So you saying hello, like could be like, whoa, this guy just said hello. No one ever says hello to me. No one ever notices me. And he did. What does that mean? And they could entirely come up with new directions from that. So I can only imagine what he thinks about like the, the just the humbleness of what his life has unfolded and how God showed up in his life to like, hey, give this man an echo to head to Colorado. Yeah, well, I, I don't think we'll know this side of eternity you know, all the importance of all those relational connections and dynamics. And it's like, this is the best part of being a military dad, because even though your military service was cut short, you were exposed to a a view of the world that anger to the world that almost helped also reveal a deeper side to the world. And military dads live a rich life. And if we can show up in our kid's life and help give some of that richness and depth to the world that we understand we can create such a better generation and the next generation of kids that can understand how they can fit into the world to make it a better place. But we have to show up. That's the key component. You can't be a side seat dad. You can't be a halftime dad. You've got to be there intentionally helping your kids understand who they are and how to go out in the world and change it. Absolutely. Well said. So Blake, Final question, what is your best piece of parenting advice as a dad, whether it be maybe some funny anecdotal advice of being a father, you've got the perspective of looking backwards as your kids are older now and looking back, what are some of the, what's like a really good piece of advice you're like, I'm really glad I did that because I can see over their life how that played out. Yeah, I think I would say be intentional and be involved. 
you know, don't let the iPad, don't let the TV, uh, don't let social media, don't, don't let those things raise your kids. Be involved in your lives, in, in your kids' lives and be intentional about it. They not only want you, but they need you. And I think, I, I think we need to remind ourselves that they, that our children want us and they need us. And we have a lot more to offer them than we realize. And so be intentional. And it's always a lot simpler as well. Like some of my advice when dad's like, I don't know what to do with my kids. Just ask them. They'll tell you like, and it's usually 10 times simpler. Like there's times where, uh, we used to go mall walking when the malls were open, COVID wasn't around. And this was their favorite thing. We literally just walked around the mall before it opened. And we're just right there with the senior citizens walking the mall and letting them run in the winter. Like, I can't tell you probably 10 times a week in the summer, they would ask, Hey dad, can we go mall walking? That was the best thing that they loved. And like, it's always the simplest things. They just want to be with you and do something, whether it be playing a simple game of, on the floor or something simple. It doesn't have to be, we make it complicated and we make parenting complicated because all they want is your time. And that's yeah, the, right. the hardest part for us to realize, but it's the easiest part once you wake up to it, that there are hard days where parenting isn't easy. But if you just understand that all they really want at the end of the day is to understand who their dad is and a little bit of a time, like that's, that's the best piece of advice that you can give someone. I love that. I, I would agree. I, I, and I, I just want to say thank you to you, Ben. I love what you're doing with, uh, with this, uh, this podcast because people need to hear it. And, uh, I, I don't know if you often close your podcasts with prayer, but I would love to pray for the listeners, pray for you, you know, and just, uh, that, uh, you know, not only the people that are listening, but that, uh, the podcast would grow because it, it's needed. What you're doing is needed. I'd welcome that. I've had a few people that have prayed with me on the podcast at the end. Father, I want to say thank you for this great opportunity and this privilege today to, to share authentically, Lord, uh, your goodness uh, in my life and your faithfulness. And even at the lowest points of my life, God, I can look back in the rearview mirror and say that you were there. You never abandoned me and you were always there. And Father, uh, for the listener, you know where each and every person is today. And Lord, I pray that you would meet them right where they're at, that Father, if they're at a desperate point, uh, that they would reach up and reach out, that others would reach out to them. And uh, Father, that they would not be lost uh, by the power of the lie that says their life doesn't matter or their life is not significant. It is, in fact, significant. So God, thank you for the great work that Ben is doing. Thank you for his heart and his passion for the veteran. And uh, Father, I pray that you would increase his platform and the opportunities to be able to minister to veterans out there who do feel isolated and lonely or those that are inspired and encouraged uh, when they hear these podcasts. God, thank you. And uh, we um, pray that your will be done in all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for that, Blake. That was really cool. That was really uh, beautiful. And I, I always get goosebumps when people do that for me because it's, it's, it's also something that we're not used to as a society when people go into those moments and pray for you, because in those micro moments where someone steps into your life, you get kind of a window to your own soul at the same time, because people are appreciating what's going on. They're appreciating what you're doing. And in the heat of regular everyday life in America, you can easily get lost of what's important. And it's always powerful when someone prays for you. Well, thank you. Thank you for the honor of being on the show. Thank you for serving this great country, Ben. And thank you for what you're doing for veterans. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This episode with Blake Maddox, I know, pushed the boundaries on a lot of different topics 
And the amount of vulnerability that Blake has with this story is just unreal. And I knew the moment I heard Blake on that other podcast, I knew I had to have him on. But for me, the big takeaway was recognizing how even when you think you've dealt with something, sometimes you haven't dealt with it. And I think that was, to me, a big takeaway of Blake's story because he thinks he's identified anger. He thinks that he's working through it. But in many cases, that anger was still rooted in so much of his behavior from early on in high school where he wasn't accepted. He was rejected by many means that we have as a society to accept someone. And that anger just governed his life into the point where it literally, he had to blow it up. And the amount of courage and integrity that he displayed when he did blow up his life was so admirable because not every man lives life on that kind of integrity. But if you've served the military, integrity is something part of our core values. It is something that you know deeply. It's wired into your mind. It's wired into how you behave on a daily basis. But what we often don't realize is integrity is often the path through whatever we're going through. Owning what you're feeling, talking about what you're feeling, acknowledging it with someone else. I think that was something else that Blake, that lesson they learned when the community was around him, he learned that he could lean into community and the right community would accept him for who he is and help him work through it. That they weren't scared of what Blake was. They were generally more in love with Blake, who could they could be on the other side of working through that anger. And so if any part of that episode really resonated and you're ready to work through some of the things that you need to work through, I want you to head on over to bencolloy.com. There is a free coaching call there waiting for you. I'd love to dive into what you've got going on in your life. The It's Time to Come Home coaching program, as I dive into these calls, it is something I am positive more and more that this is what military dads need in their life. The dads' feedback I'm getting from these calls is that they're having conversations and they're getting answers in a way that they've never had before. I can't tell you, I just had it happen this past week. He's like, you're asking questions I've never been asked before. And I asked a simple question about coming home and he almost broke down starting crying because he didn't realize that he's been chasing the feeling of coming home for so long, but no one had put those words together. So if any part of this episode or any part of Military Veteran Dad is resonating with you, what are you waiting for? There's never been a better time to move through that fog that you're feeling to have a hand reach through that fog and pull you through. Again, it's waiting for you over at bencolloy.com. If you're maybe not ready to have someone be that fog, and if you're ready to just have a conversation, go check out freedadcourse.com. There is plenty of courses there. There's a free friendship course. That course is just short lessons, five lessons, 10 minutes each, easy to listen to, but that will help get you more friends in your life because as Blake learned and as I've learned, friends can be a huge pathway to work through what you don't see to find the value that you don't see and help you feel more connected to the world and importantly to yourself. So with that, I'm signing off. If you want to check out all of Blake's information is on the show notes at militaryveterandad.com. Go check those out. All of his information for 365 Christian men are available there as well. And with that, I'll sign off and I will talk to you guys again on Friday. <music>